Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Hey, how are you doing? Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so. And yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests for coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. If you have a second, head on over to YouTube, life as a dot dot. That's where you can find it. And yeah, like or subscribe. It would help a ton. Well, on to the show. All right, I want to launch into this episode with a question for you. I want you to imagine that you are a young person. You're into science, environmental matters. And also this idea of exploration. When I say exploration, I'm talking like climbing some of the biggest mountains in the world in the name of scientific research. And also maybe traipsing through a place like Antarctica, rifle in hand, just in case, you know, you have one of those overly aggressive polar bears who wants to uh, join your party. Well, I do have a treat for you. I mean, I have this guest today who has combined all three elements I just listed off there into this really, really fascinating career. And we talk about all of these things. I mean, one, beauty of exploration, you know, the melding of curiosity and exploration together. And of course, some of her scientific polar expeditions, she shares some really, really insightful and engaging stories on all of that. We also get into some of her background and where she gained mentorship and where she kind of hopes to to fill that gap for other young women who are trying to make their way into this environmental space. We also talk about things like storytelling, how to convey some of the research and data that you're finding. So it does resonate with people and leads to action that we can all be proud of and, and, and hopeful for changing things, making a better future. So Yeah, I mean, this conversation touches on so much more than that. Those are just a few things. But I would like to uh, to introduce her to you a little bit more formally and then jump into all this. Dr. Elena Hordisky-Pena is a scientist, part-time professor, mountaineer, and explorer. However, as you'll soon learn, these tags only reveal a fraction of who she is and what she does. Let me start here. She is head of communications for the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And further, she's a certified polar guide and works in the Arctic and Antarctica with Aurora Expeditions as a geology, glaciology, climate change expert. Now, with such a deep reservoir of scientific knowledge, she consults on various research projects. Two recent undertakings include assisting an all-women team doing work near the Arctic and the other with a young female climber on K2. Now, I might add that Dr. Hordisky-Pena also manages to find time to teach 
introductory and upper level environmental science classes as a visiting assistant professor at Colorado College in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm sure you're getting a sense of this, but Dr. Hordisky Pena's innate curiosity and drive to learn more about the world around her propels her forward in a lot of different directions. Get this, by the time she turned 23, she'd already traveled to and worked on all seven continents. And she's also climbed famed mountains like Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, as well as others in places like Argentina, Chile, and Nepal in a quest to collect scientific data. Her PhD investigated ice mass loss on rock-covered glaciers in the Himalayas, particularly in the Kambu Valley, the Everest region in Nepal. A Fulbright Fellowship afforded her the opportunity to live abroad in Nepal in 2013 and 14, where she traveled over a thousand miles or about 1600 kilometers on foot collecting data on glacial changes in high alpine regions. And to close things out, Dr. Hordisky Pena has even been part of projects related to space research. Yeah, you heard that right, space research. In fact, she's helped with the testing of new commercial spacesuits to acting as a mission commander for an on-the-ground, deep-space, high-fidelity analog mission to an asteroid. So, with all of that noted, all of that stated, here's my conversation with Dr. Hordisky Pena. Yeah, all right, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Elena? Good. Nice to see you, Chris. Yeah, really excited for the talk. And your background kind of speaks for itself as far as accomplishments and unique experiences go. Quite frankly, you know, I don't think there's a lot of people on this planet who have done as much as you have or have seen what you've seen. So I think for those reasons and plenty more, we're set for a fascinating conversation. But maybe we could launch right into it. I do have the first segment lined up, something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my guests know, it's basically a segment where I just read off a definition of what the profession is, or sometimes the topic of what the guest you know, is related to. And I decided here for you to go with this broad concept, and I hope that was okay. I went with the topic of exploration. I think it applies to a lot of your you know, activities and what you're part of. So let me just read that off, and then after, maybe you could share your comments. Does this sound all right? Sounds good. All right, here we go. Exploration. Exploration is the process of exploring, an activity which has some expectation of discovery. Exploration has been defined as to travel somewhere in search of discovery, to examine or investigate something systematically, to examine diagnostically, to seek experience firsthand, and to wander without any particular aim or purpose. Very broad. Mm -hmm. Again, broad is probably the best word for it, but what would be your take? Yeah, so coming at this as a as a scientist, it's definitely in line with scientific discovery. So I'm primarily work out in the field, you know, out in the real world, not the laboratory setting. There's a lot of unknowns. That's the exciting part. There's a lot of things still to be found out. You think that oftentimes, oh, we figured out all these things, but not really. You know, um, one of the things and during my research is I would sit on the edge of a glacier. Uh, it's called a moraine. So it's a pile of rocks that the glacier shoved apart, and I would just watch and listen to the landscape in the beginning. So, you know, we have this world of gadgets, distractions. It's nice sometimes to be able to just sit in nature, you know, have it reveal its secrets to us. So coming in as a scientist, you have a list of questions, hypotheses. You do do, you know, the systematic kind of uh, process and the diagnostics that you talked about there with exploration. But sometimes nature reveals the question to you instead, something you may not have thought of. And that's the beauty of it. You know, that's the beauty of exploration and discovery and science. And also having this firsthand kind of experiential learning is a big, big part of it as well, especially when you're working on changing landscapes like glaciers. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, as I was listening to you explain that, I also sort of got this feeling that it's almost, it could be interpreted sometimes at least, maybe as a bit of a spiritual experience. Like you're sitting there and you're, you're connecting in a way with nature and the world around you, right? Absolutely. You know, I remember one experience when I'm crossing the glacier, I had like um, sights, camera sights on both sides to be tracking changes. And I was making my way to the other side and this intense dust storm just blew up you know, across the glacier and I'm sheltering, you know, and just yeah, waiting yeah, yeah. it out. <laughs> And then the sun comes out and it's gorgeous. And I'm the only person standing here witnessing this. And it is one of those powerful things too, you know, the, the power of nature and that you as a scientist are really trying to understand, you know, hey, what just happened here? Right, 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 right. Yeah. And your place within all of it. Certainly, mm -hmm. certainly. In terms of, I guess, again, I've read this off the top, you know, you have a, a wide array of experiences, you know, as a scientist, but you've, you've you know, on the exploring side too, you know, trekking up mountains in Kilimanjaro and all around the world, you know, designing spacesuits and <laughs> a wide, a wide array of things here. And as I was thinking about this, as I was researching, you know, there's two ideas or two constructs that sort of like came to mind for you. And one was like exploration, which you've just sort of addressed. And the other is curiosity. And I, I'm guessing that those two constructs sort of like are intertwined and they, they, they bring all of these seemingly disparate sort of experiences and interests together. Would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was always that restless kid, you know, in, in, in school. So I did science fair projects. I was always curious getting into things. And my nickname has become Googliana <laughs> because <laughs> I'm always like wanting to know things. It's like yeah. if somebody asks me something, I don't know, there I go, you know, so I'm trying yeah. eager to yeah. find out. But you, you have to investigate and vet things properly, you know, in the internet world, there's a lot out there. So that's why you, that's why they call it research, right? Search and yeah. research. and. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, yeah you, you kind of hit it. Yeah, it's a lot of varied experiences, but that binding theme is, uh, is science education. And the way I like to put it is my goal is really to bring science to the masses. And that's what I do through my photography, through my writing, research, and to bring the masses to science through expeditionary you know, like kind of work and bringing them along on tracks and climbs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we shift over into this other segment here, a day in the life. And the spirit of the segment, of course, is to kind of get it like a, a peek inside of you know, what a day or maybe a week might represent to somebody like yourself. And I'm, I'm thinking here that it might be a little bit difficult because again, you have so many different types of experiences here, but broadly speaking, maybe you could speak to one or two of them. I mean, just, just to kind of paint a picture for, for listeners. Sure. Yeah. And it varies depending if I'm at home or on expedition. So we can kind of look at both both sides of that. So on expedition, it really depends on the weather, <laughs> like what you're going to be able to do. <laughs> can I go out and check on a weather station or a camera station? Should we move a camp up a mountain, you know, if, if or should we move down? Standing polar bear watch, you know, sometimes just that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there really is, it varies a lot. And that's what really attracts me too, because I was never a person that really liked kind of just one thing, as you can see from all, all my experiences as yeah. well. So having that variability is, is is key to my success, I think, in keeping interest in, in the work. And at home, you know, I'm, I work part-time at this climate center uh, at a university. So it's really rewarding work because I'm communicating science uh, to the public. So those days are, they're, they're structured the way I want as well. I can put in the hours as I want, which is important for me as a, as a mountaineer because I do work out six days a week. So that's three days cardio, three days uh, strength training, and it could be up in the mountains in a gym. And so having the flexibility to work and work out yeah, has been uh, yeah. also very important. That, that work-life balance is very important. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. It sounds like you have it figured out there. Yeah, a bit envious. It took a while to get there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, all right. Well, I think that gives a nice idea of, of the variety here. Like, in getting back to, say, 
I know, like when you are out within the wild, within nature, and you're working on a project, what would that be like? Say if, I don't know, if it is in the Arctic, for example, what would be, you know? Yeah, there's always a plan A, B, and C, right? A is kind of the desire. B is, you know, if, if you can't do some of those things, and plan C is for, for the bad weather days. Uh, so you kind of try to have a general sense of, of what options exist. So really kind of tracking weather forecasts and communicating with team members who might have information as well. But a lot of the things we do to prep also is cheat sheets. You know, you just write down, these are the tasks to do, get them laminated. Because when you're working at altitude, it's really easy to then forget, wait, what was the order of what I'm supposed to do? And it's all right there. Like, okay, take a GPS point. All right, take a sample. How's the sampling yeah. done? So that kind of um, okay, okay. organization. The structuring of it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely important. A lot of that gets done beforehand for expeditions. And then you just hope for the best when you're out there and, and follow. Follow it. Yeah, as best you can. Okay. And I also like that point. I think it's really interesting, at least the plan A, the plan B, the plan C. To, to account for some of these conditions, to account for you know things that are out of your control. You, you have a task of things you could be doing in this situation. Exactly. Because, you know, oftentimes, like, there's a lot of money being spent on expeditions. And so you don't want to lose a day. So you want to see like, hey, what else can we do on, on this day if there's bad weather? And when I was in Nepal, uh, that would entail, hey, sitting down with the locals, here's what we've been looking at. Here's what we've been finding out. Have a look at the imagery with us, involving them, kind of bringing them into the fold is really important. Working with locals wherever we work. Well, I have this other segment here, something called Pathways. And as the name suggests, we're kind of like getting into the person's past and how they made their way into the present day profession. And as I often say, you know, most times or more times than not, it's interesting to me in that the guess, you know, line towards where they've ended up was never straight. There's always some zigging, zagging, left hand turns, right hand turns. And I, I'd suspect it might be similar for you, but I'd still <laughs> love to hear all the same. And also beyond that, too, I, I, you know, I've got this idea here that you know, we've already spoken to this point of curiosity and wonder for the world around you. It's probably, you know, always been part of who you are and your makeup. But maybe you could comment on that. First thing, yeah, I mean, true. Yes, I always had that that strong sense of wonder. I mean, I read so much as a kid. I mean, I would always get those um, back in the day, Pizza Hut would get get the little personal pan pizzas if you did this many books. And I was never motivated really by the pizza. It's a nice perk, but I just, I, I really, I read a lot. Um, And that kind of really helped formulate my imagination about these things. And like, I wondered about the Arctic and Antarctica, you know, what are these places like these exotic locations? Can I ever go there? So I didn't think it was a possibility. Like, how do I blend all these things that I like? I have no role models for this. But as time kind of went on, so I got into science fairs uh, as as I think I was 10, (laughs) 10 or 12, somewhere in that range, one of my first science fairs onwards through my teens. And I won a bunch of scholarship money that afforded me an opportunity to go to college and kind of formulate, hey, what what interests do I have? And that's when I came across uh, geology. I can be outside doing this kind of kind of work. And then a friend introduced me to the climbing gym. So it all kind of started to come together. You know, like I, I found out about like all the people who have climbed Everest in the past and started reading all about, you know, the high mountains as well. But where are the women, right? So like, I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a woman, I'm a scientist, I'm yeah. a mountaineer, like I'm starting to develop yeah. all this. And I learned about um, Arlene Blum. She led the first all-women's expedition to Himalayan Peak. And it was a tough one. It was, it was Annapurna. Um, and it was a woman breaking barriers in both science, because she got a PhD in chemistry and mountaineering. You know, oh, wow. and so, so I, you know, I read these stories. I read her books. I have, uh, she, 
she um, sold t-shirts with her team in order to raise money for their expedition. Mm -hmm. And I own one of those shirts and I I, uh, met her actually last year and she was amazing. And I told her, you know, this was, it was such an honor. And to tell her like, you're an inspiration to me. And I hope to do the same, you know, with my career path. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I, it, it never gets dull or boring to hear these sort of stories from from guests as they share it, you know, and like, again, it, it sometimes to me, it sort of it comes across as like one, there's this drive inside, you know, for you, you're talking about like, just this wonder and wanting to learn more and, and understand the world around you a little bit more. And then also, too, it's like, these interactions with people along the way too. you know, being introduced to this a climbing gym, being introduced to this subject in university. And it's how all of these things somehow come together amounts to where people end up, you know, and it's really interesting. And I think it's always interesting as well. Like I oftentimes have guests who will say post-recording, for example, that it was fun to kind of look back on their Mm -hmm. careers and kind of like connect those dots up. You know, we don't often take that time to do those things. But, uh, you know, in doing so, sometimes you can learn a little bit more about yourself, I suppose. And, And not only that, I mean, for listeners too, I think it's helpful in that they don't have to have it all figured out right now you know what exactly. I mean? like things exactly. are going to pop up that they're not going to expect that if you have your eyes open and you are consciously considering things it could open you up to new worlds and new possibilities yeah and also just seeing like the uh, glimmers within rejections and failures might be like a, a pathway to something different you know like where i ended up going to college was not like I was hoping for another school, you know, and I'm like, but this school ended up amazing and it really set me on a path. It couldn't have been a better experience for me. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut and I made it, you know, to the the interview phase in the last class, that, or well, I guess in 2017 and I didn't get there, but I have an amazing life with all the adventures on the earth, you know, and yeah. ways to kind of keep paying things forward for the next generation. So yeah, you mm-hmm. always have to look for like, like you said, the convoluted paths and, and at the end of the, the day, are you happy, you know, doing, doing what you love? Are you following a passion? One last question within the segment, and it's, it's maybe not directly related, but you'd raise a point of, you know, you meeting somebody that you looked up to at one point and, you know, how big of an impact that person had on your life as far as inspiration goes. And now what you're doing you know, creating these opportunities perhaps for others and maybe young women as well that might be looking up to you. You know, has that sort of full circle experience come around? It actually is is starting to like, yeah, it's in the process. Um, I've been kind of looking back, like you said, kind of like looking back on career, but also like the students that I've been helping that I've been mentoring who are winning science fairs now who are going to colleges that and and pursuing geology, for example, one young lady who is the youngest American woman to climb Everest is now climbing K2 and collaborating with me on, on science who reached out like this is amazing. And it's a chance to also, you know, to really like hopefully mentor someone. And I didn't, I had mentors, I had really good mentors, but none of them were, were female. And so I was kind of always missing part of that perspective. And so Arlene provided some of that through, you know, her writings and the books, but that's where I hope to fill in kind of a gap. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the things I did read off in the bio is that you, you are consulting and helping with people who are like one person who's, you know, summiting Everest or attempting to, and then doing research on, was it on K2? Me too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, your impact and what you're able to do for the world, I mean, one thing, like, you personally doing it must be rewarding. But then on the other hand, it's now your, your tentacles are sort of out there. You know, you by proxy of someone else, you are still creating impact. You are still, you know, delivering value and whatnot. That must Absolutely. be a rewarding experience. Yeah. 
the thing I wanted, like with the with the degree, was not just a PhD to have it. It's like to have it be a, a platform for for other things, applied science, humanitarian science, science for good. You know, just and, and science for the masses, where people can really understand, like especially climate change. You know, that's what's one of the big things we work on is helping people come to an understanding of like our natural world. I mean, I love it so much. I have so much passion for it. And I always try to, you know, show that in, in whatever capacity, whether I'm teaching a college class or or speaking to young kids. But like there's, in some ways, we're kind of losing it a bit, you know, as urbanization takes over. So it's important not to lose that. You know, speaking of climate, climate change and whatnot, I mean, certainly the, the challenges we face there are real. You know, the, right. More important than ever in terms of us finding ways forward. But uh, I'm also thinking here, too, that in terms of the opportunities, because of all these challenges we face, that opportunities to get into this space from a career perspective, professional right. perspective, within science, perhaps, you know, must be amplified to a degree. And I'm thinking of, you know, like opportunities to secure funding, get approvals, mm -hmm. even just carve out careers. You know, what would you say to this right. assessment? Oh, absolutely. It's a great time right now. Uh, I mean, there's so much more awareness to what's going on and what we need to do and the urgency. You know, I think people are much more aware ever than before. There's more unique ways to also get funding. You know, so the kind of standard is uh, government funding, National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, you know, all these national institutes. But there's also the private sector for uh, raising money. And I actually did fundraising for my PhD. did this back in 2011 to 14. There's like Kickstarter for science type uh, fundraising platforms. Uh, neither one's in existence anymore, but it was petridish.org and, and rockethub.com, I believe. And I was able to fund Himalayan expeditions uh, for my PhD to go to the, the glacial lakes I was studying to study impacts of pollution in the high mountains. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, it was risky because it's like, am I going to raise any money? What's the expectation yeah, here? Can I go? Yeah. And the other thing is like, you don't have to be a scientist to contribute to climate, right? There, there's, we need artists. You know, communicating science through art, music, business and marketing, right? Anything to get the messaging across to stimulate action. So that's the thing. You don't need to be a scientist to help. No, that's just one pathway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good point. I've been fortunate to speak with a, a number of different people on this podcast. You know, actually, I had somebody from from your region, I suppose, within the states, within Colorado, who oh, leads cool. one of the nation's largest sustainability programs, University of Colorado, and uh, yeah, some really nice. interesting discussions. And also, too, I mean, people within uh, the film and entertainment industry, you know, sustainability consultants working on major motion right. films and television shows. Like, you're right. I mean, there's so many different ways to be getting involved with this movement and, uh, right. and creating impact. So, yeah, I really like that point. Well, I have this other question here, too, that relates to climate change once again. The challenges we face are real and they're there. And, and if anything, I feel as though we're having, you know, new reports, you know, damning reports that are coming out almost on a near constant basis. Right. And I sometimes worry to an extent that like just the volume of it all numbs a certain part of the population, you know. Right. But on the other hand, you know, people like yourself that are getting out, out there, seeing it, witnessing it, but then also recounting it to others, you know, in the form of a story or in, in some other way that's not like just a data or research report, you right. know, I think that sort of like brings people back, you know, it sort of lets them experience what the impacts are a little bit more viscerally, perhaps. And uh, as someone who has experienced a lot of these things, a lot of distressing things, I'm, I'm assuming, what, what would you say to this? I mean, what could you share? Yeah, I mean, storytelling, I think is absolutely essential. It's something that I realized quite early in my career that images are much more powerful than graphs. You can show all the graphs and numbers in the world, but most people are not going to really care about that. 
right? They're not going to form any kind of emotional attachment to it. Uh, so science is objective by its nature, right? But the way we communicate it doesn't have to be. We can make human connections, right, in order for that messaging to connect. So like I mentioned, I had set up these cameras on the glacier and then and capture some pretty big events, you know, the equivalent of uh, the volume of thousands of Olympic-sized swimming pools emptying out before refilling. And the BBC picked it up, actually. I, I, I think it was my first or second year of grad school, and I'm on a press conference, and the BBC is interviewing me, and it was... <laughs> oh, my. It's, it's surreal. Yeah, the, the, the images spoke. You know, they conveyed it. You know, people can see it for themselves. Um, and not only that, I work with the locals, the, the Sherpas that live in the villages nearby to these threats of, of floods coming down from these, these lakes. And um, I started the Sherpa Scientist Initiative when I lived abroad towards empowering the local people, right? It's about a blending of our knowledge, right? It's not just the scientist savior coming in. It, it's, it's about, well, what about the people at the source who are living through this, who are witnessing uh, changes and, and can bear witness to this? Listen to their stories as well. You know, listen from the source. Yeah, yeah. A critical element to it all. 100%. 100%. Outside of what you just shared there, I mean, you know, the the glacial you know, sort of movements and whatnot and, and, and witnessing something like that, what would be some, some other things that you've seen that have stuck with you, I suppose, that, that have also maybe like created moments for people or you know that it touched them in a certain way? I think... Yeah, a lot of it kind of does cater around my year abroad uh, when I lived in Nepal. And I kind of shared on a daily basis through blogs and photos about day-to-day kind of life there. Because people are really curious about that. Like, what is that like living in, in that uh, different country? So completely different. Uh, what are the people like? What's the food like? So you can connect through those kinds of stories too. And, and I don't like, it's sneaking in the science. I don't like that word, but it kind of, you can use these opportunities to really educate yeah, yeah. as well. I think so too. I mean, it fits, right? I mean, you're you're checking off a few boxes there. Again, the people have interest in this anyway, and then when you're sliding in the science into it as well, you know, like that probably feeds or satisfies like a different need or want for people that are you know tuning in or reading or what right. you know, what you're posting. I've heard people saying like they they've ne- they would never experience these places like Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, working with the Inuits. I mean, that was very exciting for me because we flew in a Cessna two ten from Boulder, Colorado, all the way up there. So already our journey is capturing attention, you know, because we're trying to have a low carbon footprint. And then we're interacting with the locals there. We're on this ice cap, one of the last remnants of the last ice age. And it's like, it's really captivating stories um, that that people can be like, wow, I had no idea about some of these things. Or like, hey, we couldn't get to our field site because the ice all melted, you know, the even when you are disappointed in um, you can't get a result for like a research grant or something because of something out of your control, you can turn it around to saying, well, look, here's an example of, of these changes happening. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tons of different like empowering moments along the way. And, and by proxy of your experiences, people can kind of get in on that so that when they do see this report that is coming out, they can sort of like connect the dots. Yeah. And suddenly those numbers on those pages or those graphs make that much more sense to them. They hit them in a different yeah. way. So, yeah, I really Yeah, like and that. I think there's definitely a power of analogy too, like, and it depends on the audience. So when I talk about like some of these Himalayan glaciers, they don't retreat in the common ways we think about glaciers retreating. They deflate vertically. They just, they, they behave a little differently. So how much has changed in like a hundred years? So in the U.S., that's like, hey, the height of the Statue of Liberty or the height of Big Ben in the U.K. So I always try to cater lectures also to like the audience and giving them something that they can relate to. Be like, wow, I've been there. I've seen that. That's a lot of ice that's gone. There you go. That's a really good point. Well, I have this other question here, too, that kind of 
continues on, dovetails what we're just speaking about, really. And it's like this notion of what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. I, I'm guessing here, you must be just constantly faced with these like paradoxical shots of reality. You know, on the one hand, you have like the, the pure and utter beauty of what this world holds, you know, what it's all about. And you're seeing it, you're witnessing it, you're experiencing it. But then on the other hand, you're also seeing firsthand the destruction. You know, you're seeing it fall apart, especially in some regions, probably more so than others. So as somebody who cares, you already mentioned this, who cares so deeply and is passionate about the world we live in and nature and everything else, I'm guessing here that like emotionally and cognitively speaking, you must be on a bit of a, a roller coaster ride at times. Like how do you <laughs> compartmentalize this? To, you know, right. You're caring so deeply for something. How do you manage these emotions? Yeah, I mean, so I am a scientist. I have the analytical mind, so I can sort of detach, you know, when, I, when I'm looking at data and whatnot. But I'm also very much an artist with, like, I love photography. That's my medium that I communicate through. But I always try to take kind of that hopeful slant. You know, Kathmandu has a lot of air pollution problems and water pollution. That's the city I lived in, and I was having a lot of uh, issues with my lungs. But that's a solvable case. You know, the soot that comes into the air and the air pollution, like you can clear that out in a few weeks if you just regulate some of this stuff. So always try to be like, here's the problem, but what's the solution? If you keep throwing problems at people, they, you're right, they get numb. They're not going to do anything about it. But if they see there's a glimmer of like, oh, I didn't know that, but I can do something about it on an individual level, plus community, just local communities, pockets of people doing this. That's how you mobilize a movement, you know, and, and, and education is the doorway. And it doesn't have to be formal, right? It can be informal, just impromptu, talking to people on the trail. You know, I'll do that. But it's true that social inertia is still a big problem, right? It's kind of just human nature. I mean, I don't know if you saw the movie, Don't Look Up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they're kind of like, they didn't tell us. It's like, um, the scientists are all like, <laughs> was, In that movie, it, yeah, it was good on so many different levels, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The thing is, there are tipping points. You know, we are going to reach these, at which point things are irreversible. and so. We do have to emphasize the urgency of this without scaring, you know, um, but so kind of taking that whole full slant, being forward thinking and saying, hey, these parts are still solvable. I mean, how do you do a PhD? Like, it's not all at once, right? It's years of efforts and then little micro steps and back steps. And, you know, it's the same thing when trying to solve a crisis like this. It's going to be a collective effort and everyone doing little things towards towards that big solution. So it sounds to me like a, a philosophical approach to it all. And that, you know, definitely. you definitely have this sort of firm vision of, you know, what needs to be done, at least like theoretically speaking, what you're just saying there, you know, and educating the masses in the right way. And then, you know, I, I guess not being bogged down by the negativity of it, finding potential solutions. And that's sort of yeah. maybe the way that you're personally as well, not only like helping others, but personally getting through some of those mm -hmm. moments. Yeah. And okay. also like changing behavior is really hard. Everyone's so used to having plastic bags here. And then all of a sudden, what? We can't, oh, well, I'll just pay for it. That's still not solving, you know, the problem. It's like, no, we have to change our ways. And the thing is, the beauty of it is once the change gets initiated, people will resist it a lot in the beginning, but then they just go with it. So hopefully that'll happen with a lot of these solutions um, that, you know, it also has to be, um, good for the consumer as well. Like consumers shouldn't always be blamed for all these, these problems, right? We are not the problems <laughs> like me traveling or you traveling. It's like, no, there's this corporations, you know, that, that have to be taken into account and that have to be considered that they need to be making these, these big steps and we can pressure them to do that. That's a good point. I mean, I like that last point there. We can pressure them because I think that's something that I've at least personally, like I've 
you're getting to, or I have been witnessing over the last, say, even like five, seven, eight years, like that has changed. And especially with the rise of things like social media, you know, and you can attack that all you want for a number of good reasons. But on the one hand, you know, in, in the scope of this conversation, at times, like you have youth, especially it's youth that are going after some of these big corporations and calling them out. You know, and <laughs> when you get like a, an issue that it's a hot button issue that a bunch of people get behind, that is when action happens. And these corporations right. do take a step back and they do sort of examine their policies, not maybe for the the betterment of society necessarily, but it's just like, well, we don't want this PR hit. Maybe we need to do something. But either way, change is right. coming about. You change know? is so coming. Like, yeah. That is, you know, that is encouraging. Like that. that that's yeah. I mean, to, to your point also, like money, money talks, right? And so when they realize, hey, consumers aren't buying our things, we have to change. I mean, you can use that as a motivator though, right? You use whatever we, we can. I mean, just in the store the other day, I noticed less plastic packaging of some of my, the stuff I used to buy. Cause I'm like, I don't really want to buy this, but it's like, but I eat this. But then I like to see these changes and I'm going to support companies that do that. Uh, toilet paper um, is always wrapped in plastic, which makes no sense. I mean, it's wrapped in paper elsewhere around the world. And I recently saw one company that's doing it. And I'm like, all right, I'm buying that one and convincing people this is this is how it works. This is how you you stimulate that action. Yeah, so. that's exactly it. And, and talking about it, talking about mm-hmm. it, getting it out there. Yeah, 100%. All right. all right. Well, I do have one last question within the segment. And you've kind of already spoken to this, you know, broadly speaking, I guess, but maybe you can just address it one more time for us. And, you know, philosophically speaking, the work that you're doing, the meaning behind it all to you, you know, maybe you could sort of like summarize that. Again, you've spoken about this, I think, at different points in answering these other questions, but, you know, bringing it all together, what, what, what does this work mean to you personally? I mean, it really means everything to me. You know, everything in my life is, is about trying to be of service to others, through my science, through writing, through photography, getting this message across, you know, climate change is an existential threat, maybe not to us, right, to our generation, but for the ones coming down the line. So we really need to be thinking about, we have to stop kicking the can down the road, you know, it's like, when I was born, this was already known about and and here we are in 2023. It's, 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 something has to change. And I think, again, this, the younger generations, and like you said, social media has its benefits, you know, it has its problems, of course, but it also has its benefits that can be put to use for how it should be, you know, for, for communicating and, and, and problem solving. At least that's how I see it. That's how I've used it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Raising awareness, you know, mm-hmm. getting support for certain issues, 100%. It can definitely be used for good. Yeah, because if you didn't have it, yeah, if you didn't have it, imagine what that would look like. It's like, um, how do I reach people? How do I do this? Do people look at my webpage? Like, how does this? But you, you're seeing that feedback constantly. You're seeing people sharing it. You're like, yes, this is what we want. Share the content, share it. Because we also want the good information. I mean, I love that Facebook now vets a lot of stuff saying, hey, m- learn more about climate change here or this or that. You know, And it, it says it's fact-checking a lot more, which should have been happening a long time ago, but at least it is. Moving in the right direction to, to a yeah. certain degree. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are shifting over into this middle segment, that water cooler story segment. And it's one of the, the most fun segments on this program for listeners, you know, for me as well, selfishly speaking. And I'd love to hear what you have for us today. Yeah. So I was thinking about a, a story. There's many <laughs> from the field, but the one that really, I guess, kind of set me on the path to working in extreme locations. So when I was a freshman in the university, my first year, I found out that the department where I was doing all my classes, the uh, earth sciences, they go to Antarctica for research. It's like, oh, 
I really want to go to Antarctica. I want to help with the science. I want to do anything like, uh, so I applied for it for four years and my senior year, like right before graduation, I got chosen to go. So I worked on the back deck of an icebreaker. So it's a, it's a working ship. Scientists had different kinds of projects that, that they were uh, doing. And I served like 12 hour working shifts of whatever was needed. So there's a lot of discoveries to be to be had, like, hey, I'm seeing, I am the one seeing the seafloor for the first time through our surveys. I'm looking at this core. Look at that shell. How old is that? And what's that? That's a volcanic eruption. So there's a lot of like, this is as as a 21 year old, you know. So there's a lot of this kind of excitement. And then um, there's videos on YouTube that show this. But a huge calving event. Calving is giving birth to an iceberg. So this glacier is coming down and calved off. I must have been like 30 meters. A 30 meter wall um, that just came down and bobbed wow. back up. And, you know, we're all excited, like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. But then, like, looking back, we're like, we could have died. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the whole ship just went like this. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So it's not just the ice coming, right? It's yeah, the wave. It's the wave. Right? <laughs> and right. the other wave. And like yeah. huge pieces of ice washed up on the back deck, dented steel containers that were on, on the back deck. And it's just, wow, that was the power of Mother Nature right there. I want to do this the rest of my life. I want to understand this. I want to travel to these places. And that really like evoked this like sense of awe, you know, at, at the power, sadness, because wow, like look what just what just happened. So yet you do, like you were talking about before, you do get these kind of mixed emotions a lot. You're like, yeah, yeah I found this. Oh no, I found this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. kind of goes back to that point of you know th- th- these experiences along the way, some some big ones like that that you can definitely like look back and be like, okay, this really set me up, like this inspired me in some way, like this is where I want to go in my career, and you know these kind of like signposts or guides, you know, guideposts along the way, like that that set you off in all these different directions. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, that it, one, like, yeah, how can it not? You know, like, yeah, just picturing you. It. That's that was it. And then like, what was it? I think a year later, not a year later, I was up north and I had a grant to do some work in Iceland. And then I had some extra money to go to Greenland and have this experience, you know, by myself carrying a rifle in the uh, uh, the wilds of, of Greenland and just having an adventure, you know. And, and again, it was one of those things that it's science for me, but I also just the the secrets of our planet, you know, are, are all over the place and trying to discover those. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the Indiana Jones, like yeah, yeah, yeah. appeal <laughs> to not only 100%. do science, but adventure, the adventure part yeah. really drives me. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, that, that's an area, at least for me personally, I've never been really able to, to, to scratch that itch as, as deeply as what you have, you know, but like in researching for this talk, I won't lie. Like that was definitely one of the things I was most excited about, you know, is like, is that because like, I think a lot of us, I mean, we all have sort of like these little dreams as, as, as children, perhaps. And even as we go older, some of us hold on to them longer than others. And some go all the way and live them out. Like what, <laughs> what you're doing. And yeah, utmost respect for, for somebody like yourself, but also a little bit of envy. I'm not going to lie. Like it's just, yeah. Come on a trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I should, I should look into that. One last question I do have here, you know, within this watercolor story segment, and I did, you know, mention this off the top, is your relationship or your experiences with space and space exploration. And I'm wondering if we could just slide that in there. Maybe you could share a little <laughs> bit about that space suits, helping design that. I mean, that one really kind of stood out as well. Yeah. I mean, I have been interested in space from a young, as a young kid, you know, I want to be an astronaut. And I did, like I said, I, I had applied. But here in Boulder, there's something called the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. 
And it allows you to take uh, get kind of a certification, you know, and learn everything about the upper atmosphere where climate change is also manifesting at the edge of space and right? something called the mesosphere. And so it's a chance for like suborbital flight, you know, in, in the future. And, and it's being a, a citizen scientist astronaut, which really always appealed to me. Like, again, the science component there, the adventure component. Um, so, yes, I have flown in the Vomit Comet. Okay. <laughs> so All right. You go All up. Right. You pull two G's up, then you go wait list for 30 seconds, and then you come down. Yes, and you do that over yes. And over. I just, I, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so, I did have a, a former NASA astronaut on, commander of the nice. International Space Station. And when I'm researching <laughs> for that talk, I did learn about this vomit comment. So yes, <laughs> maybe you know, that's one aspect of the adventure I could maybe live without. But uh, but anyway, yeah, it must have been quite the experience. That was quite the experience. And like, so so the uh, Institute is also partnered with this private company that's gotten NASA contracts for spacesuit development for eventually citizens going into space. So that's what we are testing, you know, unpressurized and pressurized. So that was a cool opportunity to, again, be taking part as a human guinea pig, if you will, in that aspect. And then there's something, NASA has something called HERA, Human Exploration Research Analog. And so I got chosen for that mission. There's four people in like enclosed in a space that's like 650 square feet and lived there for a month and they made me the commander. (laughs) Wow. There's probably a dozen or more science projects going on in that habitat that we were helping out with. They're studying how we reacted to sleep deprivation, how we reacted to stress, confinement. And this was all pre-COVID. So like oh, during man. the pandemic when we were like <laughs> locked in and it's like, well, all right, we've been yeah, here before. Yeah, this is nothing. This is nothing. Yeah, yeah the yeah. food's much better. So like, <laughs> yeah, this is nothing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that must have been quite the experience then. For one month Very different. Very different from what I'm used to. But I mean, I've been confined to a tent, you know, day or something with with bad weather in the mountains but it could always go out and so being actually confined like this is a space station kind of mock-up like you can't leave was very different so psychologically dealing with that and how i did it was just focusing on the tasks i'm the i'm in charge these are all the tasks that need to be delegated out we exercised every day for uh, at least 30 minutes so that that helped things and i was going to be um climbing a mountain just a couple months after. So I needed to keep in shape. And so we had this ladder that connected two decks and I just made it like a group challenge. All right, let's see if we can get to the height of this mountain and this one going up and down. Exactly. There you go. Just <laughs> structuring group it out. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Structuring your day, structuring your tasks. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That little extra bit there. Well, I do have this last segment here, Elena. It's something called the crystal ball segment. As the name implies, you know, we're looking to the future, usually trans prediction, so on and so forth. And I'd like to return to this topic of technology. You know, again, I think there's a certain exuberance surrounding it, you know, and the possibilities and what we can leverage it for, you know, say within climate change. You know, I think there's, there's opportunities there. But on the other hand, though, too, I think like there, there might be this overdependence on it that like, oh, we can just, yeah, we can use technology to solve this problem. Or if this, this issue pops up, we got technology, we can take care of it. You know, I think there is that danger there as well. But I would like to hear, you know, maybe from your perspective, like some of the things where you see technology being, you know, a tool that we can use to, to, to help with this particular issue. Or, you know, on one hand, like where technology is giving you pause and is concerning you. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of climate science already entails modeling, right, invoking the use of supercomputers. Um, if they can predict the past, like what's already occurred, then that's a good indicator they can forward predict what's going to change. So all these projections that come out, you know, saying, hey, worst case scenario, or if we change this and this is very useful information for policymakers, actually, because 
you can actually see the impacts on, on, on models that are quite good about what, what's coming. There's a lot of unknown too, right? The climate system is quite complicated and variable. There's natural plus the man-made components. And, you know, we, we figured out quite a bit of it, but there's still a lot that maybe things are changing faster than expected. That certainly happened in the Arctic with the sea ice. So when it comes to AI, I mean, it has its place, you know, it can definitely help. We can leverage it, but still stand by junk data in equals junk results out, right? So we still have to vet, you know, what what we're putting into the system, sifting through everything. And that still requires that human touch. I don't think you can ever get rid of that kind of human component at this point, like where AI is now. I mean, it's probably going to change. I don't know. Should we have that capability for AI? You know, that's a whole nother topic. Whole other question, Um, whole other podcast, really. Right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But like, it, it can be quite helpful, you know, as a teacher, though, also like, Chat GPT, while great, it's like, wait a second, did you guys actually write this or not? So, you know, there's a worry that critical thinking skills might change as a result because students aren't looking and, and looking up inventing sources either. They're just typing it in. I'm not saying it's happening, but I'm saying it could be, though. And we need to be really careful of that as well, because one of the things I really promote in my classes is development of those critical thinking skills. That's so important. And that's something that AI doesn't quite have yet, right? It's, yeah. it's, it has a lot of information, but it doesn't always know how to put it together. I think that's a really good point. And I think that's you know, one of the discussion points that I often have within the segment. And when it, you know, AI does come up is the way I interpret it. You know, AI itself is still as a tool, right? It is this yeah. tool. And you're right. I mean, that critical you know, analysis of the content that it's bringing up to us, it still has to be there. Like that's our role in utilizing this tool. And we can't forget that point. Like, right. you know, whatever data it's scraping and pulling together for us, now we have to go through it and sift through and like, okay, yeah, all right, that's a good point. I can use that. This, <laughs> and now, this does right. not fit. You know, <laughs> we got to get this out of here. You know, but going through it, and it, it is a tool for just bringing all the information together. That's that's the way at least right. I sort of see it and how it could be you know, interpreted or how it could be used across industries. But we can't right. forget that point. And you're right. I mean, some people might just like, Type in, okay, I'm looking for this data and just copy, paste. Okay, done. There it is. And like, yeah, you're right. And in that case, you are losing critical analysis skills and critical thinking skills. You are. And if we're talking about the future and the future generations we're going to rely on, you know, with all the new advances and things, they definitely need that skill set. And so like, while we do some of the tech stuff and using, um, you know, models and other stuff in my class, I also just take my students out to just observe, you know, just observe and, and see out in nature what's going on using your senses is still quite important and common sense (laughs) and, you know, and, and teaching them how to vet data, because again, like there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, that uh, skeptical science is one of my favorite web pages because there's talks about all the different climate myths and what are the the rebuttals for all them, because a lot of these ideas sound like legitimate and you might be, Hey, you're not uh, educated on that topic. You might agree with, but so that really has done a good job of unpacking, you know, a myth from science as well. So like, showing people compiling resources of, of what's actually useful and vetting is like i said so important and we still need that when it comes to the ai yeah 100 and i like that point too of you know going out getting out in nature and just seeing observing listening i think that was one of the words yeah. that you used you know to open this conversation is just getting out there and connecting with nature in a way and, and taking it all in and yeah. you know when you're doing that in conjunction with you know, working with the data, you're working with others, speaking with others. I think that's where some of the breakthroughs can come. But, uh, you know, that might be a nice uh, point to close things out here. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think listeners will too. I mean, you shared so much as far as stories, as far as insights. And uh, yeah, really, really valuable information. I can't thank you enough for your time. 
Thank you for the opportunity. It's been amazing. Well, for those interested in learning more about Elena and her work, you can do so via some of her activities and endeavors, including Science in the Wild, a company she founded that aims at giving people from all over the world, all walks of life, a chance to immerse themselves in adventure citizen science expeditions. I will have the link for Science in the Wild in the show notes. She can also be found on Instagram, LinkedIn, and again, all of this information will be in the show notes. And I mean, if you liked today's show, please be sure to share, tell a friend, it goes a long way. So you can also show further support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcast. And lastly, again, I mentioned this off the top, but head on over to YouTube. I do have a channel over there, trying to gain some traction, some support for it. And I will have a highlight video conversation of this talk there. So you can kind of check that out as well with some imagery. If you do make it over there, do me a big favor, hit that like and subscribe button. It's the only way that that platform, YouTube knows that that content matters. So yeah, like and subscribe, it would help a great deal. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm Christopher Schoenwald, your host. And until next time, stay curious about life and living.